Welcome to Mind Love, episode 318. Today's episode is all about how to use your pain and your most difficult emotions as a doorway to inner freedom. In the spiritual business, they talk a lot about waking up. Uh, that's fine. But if you just wake up, you can just wake up and out. And that's spiritual bypassing. That's escapism. And so these practices show you how to wake down into the wisdom of your body. And here's the amazing thing. Your body has amazing natural inherent capabilities and wisdom within it. So one brief biological interjection, scientists will tell you this, that if you have an emotional upheaval of some sort, if you relate to it properly, fundamentally allowing that energy to just kind of course through you, the biochemical correlates of that emotional upheaval are purified, self-liberated from your body within 90 seconds. And so think about that. That means if you're in a funk, you're in a mood, you're in a bad, foul state, you're the one that's pinching yourself. You're the one that's doing CPR on an experience that is long past its shelf life. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. If this is your first time giving your mind a little love, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Mind love is a habit, and the more you give your mind that love and intention, the better you'll feel about yourself and your life. Plus, it's really a win-win because more subscribers means mind love attracts even more amazing guests to bring you their wisdom. So don't forget to subscribe. What's your first move when difficult emotions start to bubble up? Do you distract yourself? Maybe dive into work or binge a TV show? If that sounds like you, you're in good company. It's a pretty common coping mechanism. And for a long time, I was right there with you, avoiding my feelings like I avoid phone calls. The thought of being alone with my emotions felt like being stuck in an elevator with an angsty teen who just got dumped by her boyfriend. It felt so much easier to just numb it all. Not that I saw it that way at the time. I felt like I was just keeping myself busy. Welcome to distractions like parties and friends and work, social media, alcohol, party drugs. Even after I had made a ton of positive changes to my life, I still managed to move around my emotions instead of through them. But what I didn't realize at the time was that not only was I stunting my own emotional intelligence, I was also limiting my spiritual growth. And then I had a sort of light bulb moment. In my entrepreneurial journey, I had learned to see roadblocks as challenges to overcome. So why wasn't I applying the same mindset to my emotional life? Why was I sidestepping my emotions instead of facing them? And that's when I started to see my emotions as guideposts, as opportunities for transformation. And that actually brings us to the heart of today's episode, the practice of reverse meditation. This isn't your typical, let's find our Zen approach. It's about staring your emotions right in the eyes and asking, what are you here to teach me? It's about transforming your relationship with pain so that it becomes a neutral path to your next level of consciousness. So if you've been treating your emotions as an inconvenience, it might be time to rethink that strategy. What if those emotions aren't your enemies, but your guides? What if they're not obstacles, but opportunities? 
If you're intrigued, you should be, because what we're about to dive into could not only change your relationship with your emotions, but it could also offer you a path to inner freedom that you've never even considered. Our guest is Andrew Holacek. He's an author, speaker, and humanitarian who offers seminars internationally on meditation, lucid dreaming, and the art of dying. He has studied sleep yoga, bardo yoga, and other traditional practices with living masters in India and Nepal, and his books include Dreams of Light, Dream Yoga, and Reverse Meditation. So three key things we will learn are the surprising truth about seeking spiritual enlightenment and why it might be holding you back from true fulfillment, the hidden potential within anxiety so you can transform it into a healing frequency that propels you forward and the powerful practice of reverse meditation and how it can help you let go of ego, leading to a state of radical freedom. And if this is your first time giving your mind a little love, I have a few goodies for you. First, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And second, sign up for the Morning Mind Love. Think of it like a weekday oracle from your highest self to help you start each day with a positive focus. Plus, you'll get two gifts absolutely free, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you remember who you truly are. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up or text the word MORNING to 33777. And now let's welcome Andrew Holacek to the show. Hey, Melissa, it's nice to be with you. Thanks for taking the time. So I want to get right to it. What okay. is reverse meditation and <laughs> how did you discover it? Yeah, well, I I discovered it. Let's start with that. I discovered it um, some 20 years ago or so when I did a traditional three-year Buddhist meditation retreat where I was basically a monk with shaved heads and a robe stuck off in a monastery. And... Um, for the deeper divers who might be listening, it was a, a really short mention in a quite an advanced body of teachings and practices called the Mahamudra, where they had this just short little paragraph about basically creating as many thoughts as you possibly can. And they talked about it as reverse practice. And I said, well, this is wild. This is different. And so when I left the retreat, um, I then took it upon myself to unpack it a little bit more to like, wow, this is amazing. I wish we had more time to explore it. And so then I started working with it in my own capacity. And uh, the practice itself is um, the number of reasons why it's called reverse. I mean, one is these sets of practices are the reverse um, or the opposite of what most people associate with practice, which is about chilling out, getting Zen and otherwise feeling good. And that's all great. Nothing wrong with that until things don't feel so good. Then where do you, where does your meditation go? Where does your spirituality go? So the reverse practices um, are designed to really help you establish a, a sane new relationship to unwanted experiences so that you can basically bring what previously obstructed your path now can actually be brought onto your path and, and accelerate it. And so it it's, uh, for me personally, it's been just a profound set of practices that have helped me deal with some pretty severe physical things, um, probably most importantly, really intense emotional states, you know, relating to them in a new way, going directly into them instead of getting away from them. So that's really the reverse strategy, right? Usually when we hurt, we want out. Well, these practices show you the way in. Um, so they're kind of alchemical, tantric in spirit, um, where they transform lead into gold or poison into medicine. 
and therefore have just tremendous applicability in this age of so much upheaval and discord. I was just talking to, I have a constant group thread with my two cousins, and I have been on the spiritual path for quite a while. I mean, really my whole life when I look back at it, but I was raised in a religion that I don't identify with. And really since age about 25, I've just been going deeper and deeper into spirituality. And I shared something with them and both of them were like, this is just so over my head. And and I'm like, I remember when it was like that. And there's so many things like that, including meditation, where you start out and it's more about this sort of blissful feeling, but the deeper you go into it, you find out like, yeah, maybe I was escaping at first, but now it's now actually finding freedom is going deep into it. Whereas before, maybe if I would have started with that, it would have felt overwhelming. And right. what I had said to her was I was like, well, I do get that. I've been on this path a while. So here's some things to start with. Because in my head, I'm like, well, you don't teach calculus in third grade, <laughs> you know, eventually it'll right. make sense. And so I'm curious, though, does a reverse meditation like this work just as well? Or is it just as accessible to a beginner as it would be to more of an advanced practitioner? Yeah, yeah, good question. For sure. And and this is because it can be broken down into four stages. Um, and so we could go through those because I think it is of some importance, like what, you know, how do you actually do this stuff? And so the first stage is the observational step. And it's basically what it sounds like. You you basically differentiate a little bit from the discord, whether it's physical pain, emotional duress or whatever, as a way to get a, a better beat on it. So it, it cultivates this kind of witness awareness and it helps us uh, relate to the unwanted experience instead of from it. And uh, relating from it, I mean, that's not a relationship at all. That That's our usual default reactivity. That basically means what? Hit hit the exit button, eject button. I just want out of here. Um, and so the first step is, is to basically just step back, take a look, and just observe what's going on. Anybody can do that at any point. That's That one's pretty straightforward. It's like, okay, I'm just going to step back a little bit, get a better beat on this thing called pain. And then that allows you to enter the, the following steps. And so the second step is um, a little bit of a U-turn. You kind of come back into whatever the discord is, let's say it's physical pain, and you allow yourself to be with it. And this, again, this is where the reverse strategy really comes into play. Um, you know, you want me to do what, right? I mean, even biologically, uh, for evolutionary purposes, we're kind of hardwired when things hurt, we want out. And that's great. That's fine in the biological domain. But when you enter psycho-spiritual vectors, trajectories, then that biological kind of agenda becomes um, an impediment. And so with the second step, you allow yourself to just be with it, to hang out with it. And it's a little bit like um, if you've ever seen two boxers fighting, you know, when they're when they're still five, six feet away from each other, boy, they can really unload a pretty devastating punch, Right. But you know how boxers, when they get tangled up and the ropes are so close to each other, the best they can do is just throw a few little rib punches, right? And so the second step is about getting closer to establish a new relationship to it instead of from it to at least get some sense of like, hey, what is this thing? What is this thing called pain? And so that leads directly into the third step, which is the kind of um, examination phase. <clears throat> this brings a quality of analytic meditation, investigation in where you start to ask some really interesting questions. So what is this thing called pain that I have spent my life trying to get away from? I mean, what is it really? Has anybody slowed down enough 
stopped enough to take a look and really suss this out. And so this is different from traditional investigation because of step two. In other words, it's not just this cerebral, analytic, heady thing. It's a somatic investigation. So this is where you transcend but include the second step. So you're alongside with it. And now you start to investigate it um, somatically, viscerally. Like, what is this thing really? What is it made of? And when you do that, you'll find that this kind of a deconstruction approach, divide and conquer, you actually start to take this thing called pain apart. And what you discover that's, um, I think is pretty revolutionary, certainly has been for me. And there's a little equation I came up with here that summarizes it, <clears throat> excuse me, where you can paraphrase the step as S equals pain uh, P times R. <clears throat> so suffering equals pain times resistance. Suffering and pain are not the same thing. <clears throat> suffering is an inappropriate relationship to pain. And so what happens here, if you drop the resistance, <clears throat> excuse me, and you allow yourself to go right next to the pain, be with it instead of resisting it, well, you completely drop the, the, the kind of inappropriate relationship, the suffering component, and then you're left with this deconstructed sensory um, awareness to which we append the label pain. So you're basically deconstructing the whole thing, taking it apart, really looking at it like, what the heck is this thing really? not just neurologically, but but phenomenologically. I mean, what, what is really going on if you allow yourself to be with it completely? And then the last step, and then I'll pause, is the, the most profound. And this is, this is where it gets quite spiritual. So it's really only at the last step that these reverse meditations become non-dual in nature. And um, this last step is to unite, to yoke with it. And uh, the idea here is, not only do you go, go alongside it, which would be step two, not only you just be with it, you actually invite yourself to be it, to literally dissolve into the pain. And this is where without the first three steps, it's like, are you kidding me? So the first three steps are like the analogy I came up with, Melissa, it's a little like when you're trying to step into this really ice cold water, right? Ooh, I mean, most people just won't take the deep plunge. It's just instinct survival level um, instincts come into play and you just gotta jump right out. So with the first three steps, you're you're tiptoeing in, you're acclimatizing, you're getting used to it, you're, you're working your way into this deep plunge. And then with the fourth step, transcending but including the previous three, you allow yourself to just um, surrender completely 100% to the pain. And so there's a really profound statement by the great radical Tibetan teacher, Trungpa Rinpoche, where he said, paraphrasing him, if you become one with your pain, there's no one to hurt. And people are going, what? I just, this guy just lost me. What is he talking about? If you become one with whatever arises, let's say in this case, pain, if you become one with your pain, there's no one to hurt. There's just this deconstructed, pure, raw sensory awareness. And so these four steps um, result in this acronym, observe it, be with it, examine it, yoke to it, obey. Obey a new order of relationship to previously unwanted experience. Deconstruct it find out what it really is. And at the very end, the experience of pain, psychological, spiritual, um, can become totally non-dual, blissful, and spiritual. It's really difficult to describe um, until you've had the experience. It's like being in a zone state, a flow state. Unless you've been in a flow state, it's not that easy to describe for someone who hasn't been in that kind of non-dual experience. And so that's why you work your way into it, jumping all the way up to kind of the summit, using mixing my metaphors, um, which is this complete unification with the experience itself. And that's one that the experience can really become quite blissful, not in a normal conventional sense. I mean, I can give you the, in a second, I'll pause. I can share how this related to me 
when I had arguably one of the most painful experiences in the human condition, which are really intense kidney stones. So I can share a little bit how I work with it in a very practical way, but those are basically the four steps. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says. <laughs> and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small. And when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash MindLove. As you were speaking, I was having a memory of an experience I had last year. My, uh, the dog owners are going to know <laughs> that, that right. this is related, whereas the non-dog owner. owners might be like, "That's that doesn't count. But I had a dog that I had for 15 years, and he was with me in my early 20s. Oh. Every time I talk about him, I feel like I'm a tear up, but yeah. he was with me in my early 20s and he died last year. And oh. um, just being the little being that got me through yeah. so much of my pain, we were just very close. He went everywhere with me. I was a nomad. I was running from my actual pain and he was always the constant. And so uh, when I was grieving him, it was really the worst pain I had ever felt in my life. And mm. I have lost a parent, so that's saying a lot. Um, yeah. But I think I was also more open to my pain this time. That's and it. I had some practices. I didn't have this practice, but I had like steps one through three. And I was being with my pain and I was asking what was in it for me. I was really trying to shift my perspective because it was just so overwhelming. 
And uh, Ram Dass said something uh, that I I was going to say recently, but I just heard it recently. Okay. He he said how he was speaking to someone about an indescribable pain. It's like you, this pain is unbearable. So our natural instinct is to kind of retreat, but you become something different. And so I was using something like that, where it's, you become, you kind of step out of the being who this is unbearable for. And so I was just sort of trying to allow it to change me. And it was interesting because I, I suddenly this, this pain that just felt so overwhelming, where I, I like didn't know what to do with myself, all of a sudden changed into this visual of almost a blockage. And I think I might have subconsciously used another method. I wasn't thinking about being one with it. I was more thinking about allowing it to speak with me, speak to me. And I almost felt it release. Like, it's like I was closing my heart because it was so painful. And then it just sort of separated and I got all, I got chills all over my body and it, and it just changed a little bit and it became more bearable after that. And so I wonder if I was almost doing something yeah, like this. Absolutely. And so I'm curious about your experience with the kidney stones. Yeah, well, and first of all, um, say something a little bit about what you shared. And first of all, thank you for sharing. And I'm sorry for your loss. I mean, I had to put down um, an amazing pet just not a month ago, a cat that was just like amazing pet. And so I, I know your pain. It's really difficult. But T.S. Eliot said something really quite interesting along these lines. Um, when he said something about music, which I really love, he said, music heard so deeply that you become the music while the music lasts. And it's it's that type of thing. And so what you're talking about, and Melissa, that that I riff quite a bit about in the book is the resistance that we have that that traps this energy. See, what's happening is the, the energy of life is just trying to circulate through you. And where in the life contract does it say that all these energies are supposed to feel good in life, right? I mean, life is just, just rough. It's hard. It's not easy. And so what happens if we resist it, we contract against it. And, and that contraction then really traps that energy. We feel it as this stuckness. That's that what, that's what can create complicated grief, all kinds of pathologies that arise from the inability for us to actually digest and metabolize the experience. And so what you did that I riff a ton about is um, what I call the combustion cycle of the path, which is um, alternation between contraction and openness. And if we look very closely at our experience, we'll see how much explanatory and descriptive power this has. But so when you when you allowed yourself to go into it, you're feeling the contraction, um, then at a certain point, something kind of opens and lifts. That's a moment of openness. And when that openness takes place, it radically transforms the relationship to it. The, the energy is then released, which is analogous to what you were feeling as, as uh, feeling a little bit more almost lit up from the emotion. And I bet you any money, if you were to go back and, and look, um, even analyze the experience itself, you would probably find that at that moment when the experience changed, the resistance was gone. And there was actually probably a, a couple moments when Melissa wasn't there. In, in other words, you were no longer referring the experience back to yourself because it's that reference, it's that contraction back to central headquarters. That's what kind of creates the, the knots, the traps in this energy. And so this is really worth saying because like, okay, why should I bother with these practices? Well, I mean, on one level, they're elective, they're optional, right? But is heartbreak optional? Is pain optional? Is old age, sickness, and death elective and optional? No, it's not. 
And so if we want a, a psycho-spiritual skill set, um, a new way of relating to life's inevitable partners, then these practices have a lot to offer. They, they can really shape-shift the way we relate to virtually anything. And what they allow um, is a kind of complete partition, par participation in the experiences of life, even when those experiences really hurt. Um, and so for me, I, again, I, in terms of my, my kidney stone, so this was some 20 years ago when I'd come out of my retreat. I was living alone in, in the mountains after a painful divorce. So I had that emotional thing going on. It was a pretty heavy time for me. And then so I get this double whammy, you know, I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm trained in the, in the healing arts. I'm a retired dental surgeon. Um, so pain, when I talk about pain, it's not just from armchair philosophizing. I mean, I have written tens of thousands of prescriptions for narcotics. I work on a clinical level with pain. I've been involved in scientific studies on pain. So I'm not sitting here just speaking from a, an ivory tower. I've, I've been in the trenches both clinically and experientially. And so when I had when I had the kidney stones, I made a differential diagnosis rather quickly in the middle of the night. Whoa. And so what I did was, okay, I'm, I'm going to go to the ER at two in the morning. They're not going to bring in a urologist at two in the morning. I'm just going to wait all night in the waiting room. So I went downstairs into my little shrine room and the pain was so intense. I just kind of curled up in a little ball in front of my little shrine altar. And I just practiced what I had been trained. At that point, I wasn't preaching on this yet, but um, I literally just allowed myself to go through these stages, which um, fundamentally allowed me to dissolve completely into the pain. And it was super interesting because as I tried to initially release into it, I could totally feel the biological evolutionary force imperative of contracting away, getting rid of it, getting away. And so it really, I had to work against this monumental tide of both nurture and nature. And that's why these things initially are not that simple. And so eventually, as I kind of alternated, I could feel the contraction. And that and that moment of contraction is that's when I took the simple pain and, and transformed it into complex suffering. And it was just the most amazing thing. I could feel this pulsation. I opened to it, but then the reflexes would come in and I contract. And that's when I suffer. Open, contract, suffer. But eventually I dissolved into it. And, and here's the kicker. It's really hard to put into words. It, it didn't feel good what I was left with. But here's the point. It also didn't feel bad. It just felt really real, really intense energy, sensory awareness. And so, boy, oh boy, did that like, oh my gosh, like here's some real life traction with this practice. And then since then, I've, I've used it with heartbreak when I was going through this divorce and other you know moments of intense emotional pain. It's not like a pity partner. It's not like I pulled a blanket over my head and it's like, oh, woe is me. No, there's no commentary involved here. I mean, if you're commenting on the experience, you're still contracting. So I, you know, I feel whatever I'm feeling fully, completely. And I notice this little flickering. If, if I'm not feeling whatever unwanted experience, if I'm not feeling it fully, that's when I append the label, irritation, pain, or whatever. But if I allow myself armed with these teachings, which I, I grant you, they are radical, armed with these teachings and the view and the practices, you know, the support them, I allow myself to, to tiptoe in and then die fully, um, surrender into it. Boy, it's a deal. It's a deal maker. Um, and so, for people who are listening, I recommend slow and easy. You try it. You play with it. You explore it. You get the doctrinal support because the you know the first more than half of my book is all about all the traditions that support 
this type of works because it's again it goes so against the grain of everything that we've been taught right but your experience melissa really intimates it quite powerfully so thank you for sharing that there's a lot of the reverse meditation strategy and what you did it's interesting because oftentimes these meditative practices focus more on an emotional pain but it uh -huh. sounds like this is just as effective for physical pain for sure. That's the one genius aspect of it. It really is a kind of one size fits all practice. I mean, I interest, I use it mostly for intense um, cognitive emotional states of mind because I'm afflicted with those more than I am afflicted with physical pain. But um, I have found the applicability of these practices to both for both of these um, to be just extraordinary, you know, and, and it, the same fundamental principles apply just uh, having the courage, the uh, the kind of intrepid quality, the fearless quality to step into that which we would normally flee. Again, there's the reverse strategy. Um, and it's actually quite amazing. I, I think it's because I've, I thought about this. These practices can be incorporated into your life quite quickly. That's That's been a wonderful surprise for me when I've practiced it myself and when I've been teaching it. And I've wondered like, gosh, I wonder why that's the case. I think perhaps part of the reason is they're related to intense experiences, and they're also very somatic. So what I mean by that is, as you probably know, in common parlance in the spiritual business, they talk a lot about waking up. That's fine, but if you just wake up, you can just wake up and out, and that's spiritual bypassing, that's escapism. And so these practices show you how to wake down. They show you how to wake down into the wisdom of your body. And here's the amazing thing. Your body has amazing natural inherent capabilities and wisdom within it. So one brief biological interjection here, neuroscientists will tell you this, that if you have an emotional upheaval of some sort, if you relate to it properly, basically that allows, fundamentally allowing that energy to just kind of course through you, the biochemical correlates of that emotional upheaval are purified, self-liberated from your body within 90 seconds. And so think about that. That means if you're in a funk, you're in a mood, you're in a bad, foul state, you're the one that's pinching yourself. You're the one that's doing CPR on an experience that is long past its shelf life. And, and so if you just drop into your body, it's like Suzuki Roshi said, the great Zen master, amazing statement. He said, you know, we shouldn't be smoky bonfires. We should be good bonfires. And my uh, kind of commentary on that is, is cremate your experience while you live it. In other words, live your life with the light fully turned on, with the gas fully turned on. Don't live it on a pilot light level. Don't be a smoky bonfire. And if you do that, you're going to find yourself leading, leading a freer, more full, more authentic life where you're no longer afraid of your emotions. You're no longer afraid of your pain. You actually embody your emotional energies more authentically, more fully, more vibrantly. You actually feel more. Here's the kicker. You feel more, but it hurts you less for all the reasons I explain in the book. And, and so these practices have a lot of, um, I playfully call it stealth help. There's all kinds of collateral benefits. And one is, boy, these things will really bring you into life because you're no longer afraid of life. You're no longer afraid of participating fully in your energies and you can purify them. So when you're, when you're dealing with really intense anger, for instance, these practices in a kind of tantric alchemical way will show you how to purify that anger by being with it fully, not indulging it, not repressing it, being with it fully. That allows that anger to alchemically transform, the lead transforms into intense clarity. 
And so every one of the emotional energies, if we're thinking of emotional challenges, every one of the emotional energies has a near friend side, a, a light side. Um, if we look very closely again in, in the spirit of alchemy, you can transform these previously unwanted states of mind and realize if you just experience them fully, literally feel them 100%. And again, Trump Rinpoche had this amazing, most amazing statement, now pause, where he said the absolute experience of duality is the experience of non-duality. I mean, wrap your mind around that. That's amazing. That means that basically, if you simply experience whatever you're experiencing right now, or any under any other moment or condition, you experience that 100%, that's it. That's actually the experience of the non-dual. And so this really empowers the immediacy of, of spiritual agendas, what we're really looking for. It puts it squarely directly in your, into your um, sights. And it also um, brings everything onto the psycho-spiritual path, right? There are no weeds in the Garden of Tantra. Everything is allowed on this journey because it's a journey of openness, receptivity, and accommodation, and, and radical acceptance. So... And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero-sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams, Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs, all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back. No questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. I like how you said earlier that when you were going into your physical pain, what you were left with, it wasn't good, but it also wasn't bad. It was like this no. neutral understanding of pain. And that's something that I've come to understand better in the last few years. Whereas I think the first probably 10 years of my spiritual journey, even though I didn't consciously realize it, I was hoping to get to some place of absolute peace where I didn't right. experience all the yeah, ups okay. and downs. And I was like, oh, maybe I won't be so emotional. I won't have so many peaks and valleys. But what I found is that my relationship to those peaks and valleys has just changed. Totally. I'm reminded of something Ram Dass said when he was speaking to his guru. He said something like, well, how do I... Because he kept trying to get high, as he calls it. And right. so he was kept escaping. And then finally, his guru told him, like, why don't you try 
ex- why don't you try actually going through the curriculum, the curriculum that is yeah, being exactly. human, that is Earth? And there's yeah. all the ups and downs. And so how does someone who hasn't had this sort of realization for themselves begin to change their relationship with that type of pain to, to, to sort of see it differently. I know one of the things that you speak about is that pain is basically good. And this goes yeah. into, into yeah. the, yep. the right view. Yeah. Spot on. And again, that's why I have, you know, in, in kind of in the spirit of Tantra, um, which is a term widely used, but so wildly misunderstood, there's the classic maxim in the Tantric traditions where they say the preliminaries are more important than the main practice. And this is important because a lot of these uh, tantric practices, uh, people just want to hopscotch, race to the kind of elite tantric goodies. And then then it just doesn't work or backfires or we can even hurt you. And so with that in mind, I, you know, you read the book, probably two thirds of the book was actual preparatory material for the reverse practices. And then when I actually introduced them with all the preparation and all the support to get to your question directly, once you realize that the, the Kabbalistic Jewish mystical tradition supports these this approach, um, Gnosticism and Christianity supports it. I have reference statements from that, from from both Advaita Vedanta and Nandul Shaiva Tantra from the Hindu tradition, from the multiple schools of Buddhism, basically every world wisdom tradition, let alone a handful of sophisticated Western philosophers. There's a lot of doctrinal support for this. And that's important because without this right view, um, which is the first and arguably most important of the Eightfold Factors and the Eightfold Noble Path in the Buddhist tradition, again, this stuff this stuff goes so against the grain of everything we've been taught about how to relate to unwanted experience. You know, we just, we don't want to deal with any of this stuff. So the, the doctrinal underpinnings, the teachings, the, the support, the right view is so important. But then the, the preliminary practices, Melissa, are also important. So as you know, in the book, I talk about the two principal infrastructure practices. First is just good old wonderful standard mindfulness meditation. That that provides a, a very sound platform for this. And then the real magical um, preparatory practice is the practice of open awareness, which is um, a magnificent practice that allows one to open one's mind and heart. Um, now this is before you get to unwanted experience. The open awareness through the formality of the practice allows you to develop a complete recept- receptivity, accommodation, and radical acceptance to whatever arises in your mind and in your world. And so with that, um, then when you finally get to the reverse meditations, you've done the preliminaries, then it's like, okay, my mind and heart now are so open. You know, there's a maximum of mixing your mind with space. And that's what open awareness does. Um, space has some really interesting qualities. You know, the, the inner space of the mind is not the same nor is it different from the outer space of the so-called physical world. And the wisdom traditions use this kind of non-dual approach, outer space to work with inner qualities. And so space is really interesting. I mean, raise your hand now and move it through space. It's like the softest thing in the world, right? There's nothing softer than space. Well, it's also the most indestructible, adamantine. You can't burn it, you can't cut it, and you can't vaporize it. So space is the softest and hardest thing in the universe. And so when you learn to mix your mind with space, not only does your mind and heart become open, more softer, more vulnerable, receptive, but it also becomes what I call industrial strength. Industrial strength mind, industrial strength meditation, because nothing can hurt space, nothing can burn space. And so you come prepared with this, 
into the venue of the reverse meditations. And now all of a sudden, oh yeah, now I get it. Now I know how this works. Now I know how I can do this. And so baby steps are involved here. You have to be very kind to yourself. You go really slow. You're curious. You're very playful. This light-handed approach is, is really quite helpful because again, you're going so much against the grain of everything we've been taught and it's, it's really in our biological makeup, our DNA to resist these types of things. So we have to be really gentle, playful, curious, and wonder, geez, I wonder, maybe, is, is there a new way? Is there, is there a different way to relate to my heartbreak? Is there a new way to relate to my grief, like you were talking about, or my physical pain? I mean, most people spend no time dealing with unwanted circumstance. Like have, they have no room for it. Literally, again, revelatory. I have no space for this. I have no room for this. They go to the medicine cabinet. They go to the liquor cabinet. They go to some distraction therapy, some entertainment thing. Well, there are wisdom tools where you can bring this into play. Um, and I teach a lot and write a lot about the end of life, death and dying. And these practices really come into play at the end of life. <clears throat> when everything is falling apart and you have this set of practices at your side now, whoa, this is no small friend to take with you in a really challenging situation. It was so weird. I was having thoughts about what I was going to say next. And then it was like you were speaking some of my thoughts with the reaching. I was like, oh, well, well, that just manifested quickly. But I, uh, cool. I have always been, I joke that I've always been a more, more, more girl. So much of my journey in the beginning was undoing different addictions from uh -huh. I had a, a pretty severe eating disorder. I drank too much at a time. I was addicted to Adderall. I did all the party drugs for a very yeah. long time, like all the things. And so I was just interviewing someone who was talking about the undoing of that. Like the, at some point you realize adding more to your life, even if it's, cause that's something I went to through too. more yeah. certifications, more skills. And so I thought that's how I was building myself up. And it was a step in my journey for sure. I think I yeah. needed some, something to make myself feel good about who I was after all I had gone through. But then I started to realize, okay, it's not about more, it's about less or totally. or even better put, being completely okay with what is right now. Totally. And that's one of the things too that I, that I still teeter on with my self-care because I love a good wellness gadget. <laughs> I think they're great. I love okay. the time we're living in. My dad was a gadget guy. <laughs> I think it might be hereditary, but I, I like like laying on my crystal therapy mat and all the things, but what I have a very stark realization of these days is that at some point, even those tools, which I still love, are hindrance because I'm reaching outside of myself rather okay. than just going inward yeah. with, with what I'm experiencing. And so now I like to use my tools as the kind of cherry on top. I do the the work first and then I can sort of reward myself with yeah. with a gadget here and there. But we so often believe that we don't have time for this because that was my story where I'm like, well, I, I just don't have time even for the self-care things that I would get. But when I, if I really was honest with myself and laid out my day, when am I just watching a mindless show? When am I scrolling through social? I mean, look at my screen time. I can pretty much find, I can find areas to make space if I was intentional with it. And just so often we have this story in our head that, no, we're too busy. We don't have time. But again, it's that honesty with yourself. Where can you make time? Because a practice like this 
whether or not it's this these steps that we're taking or just the space for yourself to sit with who you are and and be and and find stillness anyone can make space for that and and when that becomes the practice when that becomes the first thing you reach for life changes yeah well said spot on you know meister eckhart the great christian mystic once said beautifully you know the soul does not grow by addition but by subtraction and so I think it's just spot on. You know, we we look outside of ourselves because we we feel there's something missing. Um, there's some it's kind of an innate deficiency thing. And so while we're looking out, we're looking out. And Trung Prameche again, master of the one-liner, once beautifully said, "You know, there is no way out. The magic is to discover that there's a way in." And so meditation, in particular, these reverse meditations, they're magical because they do show us the way in even in situations where all we want to do is get out. And so when we do go in and we start to go towards this subtraction narrative that you're talking about, this is no small thing. We start to realize that what we call pain, what we call suffering, these are all constructs. They're, they're literally, in Sanskrit, they're called vikalpas. They're made up. They're constructs. And by doing these practices, they're practices, they're demolition derbies. They're, they allow us to deconstruct pain, suffering back into its fundamental elemental components, which is where you find what you were talking about earlier, this basic goodness, this divinity, this perfect purity, that from an unexamined perspective, what does Socrates say? The unexamined life is not worth living. You know, you're trying to tell me that somewhere inherent in my pain is basic goodness. Yes, the wisdom traditions have said this for thousands of years. Within my heartbreak and my grief, there's divinity, basic goodness. Yes, you just have to take a look. It may not be your version slash ego's version of perfection and divinity, but that's the all the other thing that's also deconstructed with this. So in the very final stage, when we get to the yoking part, stage four, this is the amazing thing where it gets really deeply spiritual. Not only do you deconstruct this thing called pain and suffering, the experience of it, you deconstruct the experiencer. You realize that fundamentally by taking one out, you can't have one without the other. You can't have self without other. You can't have experience without experiencer. You radically pull the legs out from one of these, you collapse into this thing that the wisdom tradition is called non-duality. And the really cool thing about this is you start to realize, again, the immediacy. Remember, the absolute experience of duality is the experience of non-duality. Man, wrap your mind around that. This is amazingly empowering. It means that what most people are looking for the so-called enlightenment thing, if they relate to it, is, is non-duality. It is right there, always under any circumstance, even those circumstances that you would previously deem to be the most anti-spiritual. So you mentioned earlier, Melissa, I wanted to say something about this. I think there's only two things wrong with, with the notion and the idea of spiritual path. Number one, use of the word spiritual. Number two, use of the word path. Outside of that, it's perfect. And by that, what do I mean? Well, if you're setting spirituality not merely in contrast to, but in opposition to materiality, what do you do with the world? What do you do with your so-called material life? These practices allow you to find the, the, the spiritual in the material, a path to nowhere, or take that word apart, now here. Second thing, path again, path to where? Path denotes the absence of that which you seek. Well, these practices will show you, oh my gosh, you already have everything you could possibly be looking for. And so therefore, the collateral benefits, the self-help benefits behind this, yes, for sure, they're directed for pain and hardship and everything I just mentioned. But boy, for those who are willing to go to the deep end of the pool, you start to deconstruct this notion of self 
this this gets profoundly spiritual. Your whole um, understanding of, of reality of mind becomes much more immediate for you. The 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 instantaneity of what you're really looking for is is made more apparent to you. And in my decades, 20, 30 years of doing this has been a major game changer for me, which is why I'm so, super excited to be sharing it at this point, because I think in this age, right, no um, shortage of material here of so much discord, so much dissonance, so much strife, pain. Whoa, these practices have so much immediate applicability every time you start to hurt. I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between all all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash MindLove. Just go to Indeed.com slash MindLove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash MindLove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'm so glad you said that about spiritual path. I was speaking to someone like two weeks ago and I, it's a term I think I use a lot. And when I said it, I actually said in my mind, I was hearing myself say, you know, path is very linear when I wouldn't call this that at all. Mm -hmm. And you're right, because so much of what we understand, I want to say grok for those who have read that book, but <laughs> stranger in a strange land right. really understand is is a construct. And if we allow that to dissipate, what's actually there? And yeah. we are actually 99.99999% space. And so why are we so often so quick to relate just to the material of that, the, the very small percentage that is, is dense material. And so Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for saying that because it was almost like, remember, I tapped you on the shoulder with a nagging awareness a couple weeks ago, and here it is laid out. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Melissa, one reason we're so quick, if I might just throw this in, I, I would posit that one reason we're so quick to identify with that, that 0.0001% of what even just exists or appears to exist, is because of, of developmental issues, um, ego. I mean, ego is exclusive identification with form. That's what ego is. It's an arrested form of development. 
And so we identify with that because that allows ego um, to identify itself. Because if you don't have anything out there, just brief sidebar, if you don't have anything out there, even if it's 0.001% of what's there, by immediate implication, that means you don't have something in here because they lean on each other, they co-emerge. And so we slash ego, this arrested form of development, we emphasize that, we attend to that because if we didn't attend to that, we would fall apart, we wouldn't exist. And so again, I'm, I'm leaning for the deeper divers listening to this. This is where these teachings and these practices will take you because you, you can fundamentally deconstruct both internality and externality, experience and experiencer, to arrive at what the wisdom traditions again refer to as non-duality. Well, what exactly is this vague, opaque term? This is something you can experience in those situations that you would previously deem, and just to reiterate, the most anti-spiritual pain, duress. And so therefore, I just say this over and over again, um, the ability to take all these untoward experiences, those things that we would normally just flee from and allow them now to go directly into us. Let me just give you one very quick example. So I, I live um, near an airport and um, this is still very much part of my practice. Planes fly overhead. And if I'm not relating to that noise properly, which is basically just neutral sound, right? What happens is I find myself really irritated. Wow, why do these piston things have to fly so close? Why are there so many of them? So blah, blah, blah. And so what I've done armed with these practices is that I notice now that whenever I feel irritation, and again, no shortage of material for that feeling, I realize the irritation is coming about because I'm not experiencing the, the seemingly irritating stimuli fully. And so then what happens is, so the plane goes by, I feel the irritation, I feel what? Contraction. That's why I love this term because it's not just a cognitive cerebral thing, I can feel contraction. So I feel the contraction, I use that now, that obstacle is an opportunity to what? Just like you were talking about with your grief experience, to open. So I feel the irritation, I feel the contraction, I own it. There it is again, if I capitulate to it, man, that's irritating. But now in a tantric way, alchemical way, I feel it, don't feed it, I go directly into it. And I try, I, I try to hear that plane as fully as I possibly can, just like the reverse thing. And I have noticed it's the most amazing thing. If I just allow myself to hear that plane as fully as I possibly can, the irritation disappears. You know, it's just like, it's the most amazing thing. There it is. My relationship to it is radically transformed. And so then I apply this to everything. All those situations in life of which there are endless situations where I'm contracted, you know, I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm whatever, just endless varieties. And I realize every single time it's because I'm not experiencing those things fully. So once again, the cash value, the traction, the applicability for daily life. You know, um, live your life fully. Joseph Campbell talked about it. He said, you know, I don't think what people really want is a sense of meaning and purpose. I think what people want is a full direct experience of life. High five, Joseph Campbell, spot on. So now all of a sudden, irritation, fill in the blank, right? Anger, whatever, fill in the blank. Now, this doesn't mean you don't do anything about it. That's the near enemy. Oh, I'm just going to acquiesce to what's happening in Ukraine. I'm just going to acquiesce to what's happening in the world. No, 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 not at all. What this means is you can now relate to what's happening in a much more authentic way. And therefore, when you do step up and do something about it, you're doing it in a much cleaner way. You're no longer 
infecting it with your projections and your hopes and your fears. You're actually seeing things much more clearly. Why? Because you're experiencing them more clearly. You're feeling them more fully. And then you can relate to others who are also suffering in a new way. So great way to come around to the applicability. Yeah, this stuff is super powerful for yourself. But boy, it comes down to helping others and helping the world. And that's so important. I mean, my whole thing right now, Melissa, is like, if what we're doing on the psycho-spiritual path business, if it's not applicable to a world that's on fire right now, it's irrelevant. It's just new age, feel-good spirituality. Um, and so to me, it's like, how can we use this stuff that comes from these ancient wisdom traditions, use it today in a world that is in just a heap of hurt? At my last house that I lived in, we just moved a couple weeks ago, but I had my office and it was right near a window in the front and we lived in kind of a condo. And so every week the lawnmowers would come and, you know, fine, unless you're a podcaster and then they keep changing the date on you. And <laughs> so I would get so irritated with this lawnmower, but it was funny because I got the day right finally, or, or again, altered my schedule around their new schedule. And I was sitting in a meditation and the lawnmower happened and I could feel myself contracting. And I actually, my uh, method right now, or probably forever, but I, I've just been really in tune with it the last couple of years has been, you know, that kind of inner dialogue. Like instead of like expecting to know the answer, I'll ask first and allow it to come. And I was just like, oh, this again, why? And and I just all of a sudden changed my relationship to it. And I was and I was sort of pretending it was a healing frequency. I'm like, what if this is a low vibrational tone and it's exactly what I need in this moment? And again, it totally changed my relationship to yeah. it. And another thing that happened was I did an interview recently about anxiety and, and it came up about how anxiety can also sort of be reinterpreted as excitement. And that's something I've used over the years as well. But I have been having a different experience with anxiety since I gave birth the first time. I probably always had aspects of it, but I had never identified as an anxious person. I was like, I've never really experienced anxiety. And then I started to experience it and it wasn't a good feeling. And I was again, and I decided to go meditate to release it. And I was playing around with the ideas of it being excitement instead. And I often talk about my Rolodex of mindsets. Like I'll I'll think about something a different way. I'm like, no, that's not working. Next thing, and next thing. <laughs> and I'll just kind of go through different schools of thought that I've learned. And for some reason, the excitement wasn't working. But then I landed on it being undirected energy. Yep. And in that, there was more curiosity. Because I, with the excitement, I had already had too much meaning around that word. It's like, okay, well, what am I excited about? And undirected energy had just, just enough non-meaning to me that I was like, okay, well, what's in this? And instead, I could just sort of feel it trickling through my body and it was no longer a negative feeling at all. It was just the movement of energy. And so I love that idea of just sort of changing your relationship with something. And again, for me, a lot of it is about removing the meaning because we, we don't even realize that we've given meaning to every single thing and feeling and experience. And so we jump to that immediately and we don't often challenge it. But what if we could ask, like, well, what is this experience without the meaning that I've already given it? Then what's there? That's it. High five. You got it. I mean, the meaning is remove the meaning. Basically, in, in my languaging is remove the construct, remove the narrative. 
And so that that's exactly where we transform simple pain into complex suffering is you contract away from it. You know, this is happening. The narrative starts, the meaning, the imputation, the projection of meaning starts. That's all born of, of the contractions. And so you also nailed on something about the anxiety. You know, you feel the anxiety fully. That, that's kind of the lead or the near um, enemy. Transform it into a near friend. That's the gold. Relate to the anxiety for what it is. And you'll find when you did this, I bet you that there is a little bit less Melissa involved when you had that experience because the anxiety is actually created when that feeling is referred back to an experiencer, you. And so when you feel the energy, I bet you any money, it's because Melissa has been temporarily lessened. And then the energy that naturally courses through the anxiety is released for what it is, which is this kind of ex excitement thing. And therefore, once again, whoa, wait a second. I don't need to get rid of all these seemingly unspiritual energies. They're the energies of life. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Relate to the energies purely and the energy will purify itself. And the last thing, I, I love what you said about the lawnmowers. There's a sometimes a little thought experiment I play with where um, it's a wonderful thing to imagine that everybody on this entire planet is already a Buddha, an awakened one, a sage and a saint, except for you. And so therefore that lawnmower is there, what, to teach you, right, about patience. The planes are flying over uh, on my head, overhead, you know, flown by a Buddha here to teach me about irritation. And so this wonderful view, um, even though it may be fake at first, the sacred view that everybody out there that just gets my goat and does whatever to me, they're fundamentally there as my teachers, right? They're there to show me all the ways I'm stuck. And therefore makes them much more playful and lighthearted. The irritating whatever is there, that's a saint, that's a siddha in my life, showing me how to deal with patience and tolerance and those sorts of things. So that's a quality of openness then, you know, just becoming more and more open to our experience, saying yes, 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 instead of no, 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 and realizing how much more enjoyable life is if you live that way. Ram Das calls it God and drag. Whenever yeah. something happens, it's just God and drag. Yeah, exactly. Silly sense of yeah. humor. Well, we talked about this openness, but there's a couple quotes that I wrote down. One of them was... Okay was uh, having discovered a sanctuary within my body, I have no need for a monastery. And that kind of ties back to what we talked about before, where, you know, we are so used to reaching outside of ourselves. But if we go inward, that's all we really need. Yeah. And that's a discovery that sometimes takes a while for people to understand. But I remember when I was younger, actually having a belief that I did not like being alone with my thoughts, which is just so funny to think about now, <laughs> the opposite way of what that I'm going now. Mm. But you talk about something in your book about creating the sacred. And I feel like that's important to, to understand when we're doing this, because a lot of people will be like, well, I'm going inward. And it's like their thoughts are too loud and the feelings are overwhelming. And, and they're already trying to exit before they can even allow that space to go in. So what do you mean by creating the sacred? And how can people do that? Yeah, yeah, nice. Another good one. Um, I might rephrase that just a tiny bit. It's a, it's a small refinement of languaging, but I think it has a, a, an important implication. It's not so much creating the sacred as allowing the sacred. Um, and this ties in to the very beginning of the book where I was you know, mentioning earlier that I'm, I'm setting the stage using all these references, quotations from all this research, supporting the view, the radical view from the wisdom traditions that if the world reality mind is seen properly, it is sacred. It, it's, it, it's perfectly pure. It's divine. You're in heaven already. You're in a pure land already. You just don't see it. 
So to me, it's more a quality of revelation, discovery, than again, creation. It's, it's a process of subtraction. So if we just subtract away the profanities, if we simply just remove the contractions, the adventitious defilements, the commentary, the imputation of meaning, well, when you do all that, in exactly the same way that I was recommending with the reverse meditations, you're you're it's a demolition derby. You're basically deconstructing, removing all the things that basically obscure um, a naturally inherent sacred world. And this this includes things like your pain. I mean, your heartbreak. If, if you again, if you relate to that properly, just like your anxiety and your grief, you will literally discover, uncover through the process of subtraction that those feelings are inherently divine. They're fundamentally sacred. In, in the Tibetan world, it's what they mean, the inner rendering of what it means to meet the, the deity. The deities aren't these external agencies waiting somewhere, some obscure heaven. No, the deities are like God and drag, right? The deities are actually already inherent within the profanity, so to speak. And so it's a matter of my language in re removing the cataracts of confusion, literally, um, discovering, revealing what is already hiding in plain sight. And then yet again, what does that do? It allows you to realize that what you're looking for, the sacred world, whatever you want to call it, heaven, pure land, you're in it. You're in it. You just don't see it. Because it may not be aligning with your versions of what it would be. Um, it may not, your, your worldview may not have enough room for so-called anti-spiritual or non-spiritual experiences. And so therefore, things like right view that you mentioned earlier are so important. Even if it's a fake it till you make it kind of view at the outset, it's like we do not see the world this way because we've been trained in the Western culture, these Abrahamic traditions to see the world based on concepts of like original sin, original impurity. That's a construct. That's a that's not according to the non-dualism traditions. That's actually not the way things are. So I would just, just reinstate it's not an issue of creation. It's an uh, issue of revelation and amnesis, it's called the, the process of recollecting, remembering, remembering. The essence of spiritual practice is remembrance that the world is pure. You are a Buddha or whatever. You are a deity. You just forgot. So these practices are all about jogging your memory, waking you up. Super simple. But simple doesn't always mean easy, right? Speaking of dissolving constructs, I'm very thankful to A Course in Miracles because it's allowed me to actually be able to accept certain terminology that based on my upbringing, I sort of rejected certain religious terms. Like I couldn't hear them without immediately contracting. And yeah. one of those was the word holy. And oh, there's yeah. a sentence in your book that says, the holy as the experience of the whole means that when we're fully present, when our attention and presence are whole, we realize the sacredness that is always already present. And that's just so in tune with what we've been talking about, where it's, it's like, I used to think of holy as kind of this holier than thou, like this, right. think of a monk or Jesus or something like that. And it was, had nothing to do with me. Yeah. And now looking at that word as the experience of the whole, like in the true present moment is just so transformative. So thank you so much for your Welcome. work in this book and just your work in this lifetime, because uh, it's, it's really helpful and pulling together so many different wisdom traditions for something actionable. So I love leaving listeners with something to really focus on, to practice this week, to ground all of this into their reality. Would you have them practice the whole reverse meditation or is there a stepping stone that oh, they can yeah. keep in their mind? 
oh yeah, okay, so let's do something really, yeah, so let's do a baby step thing here. Go ahead and close your eyes for just a second. And this is a, a, a brief way to kind of incorporate the spirit of, of the reverse practices in, uh, and also an introduction to them. And the invitation here would be the next time you feel the urge to complain and like how often does that happen, right? The next time you feel the urge to complain, pause for a moment before you express that complaint. Elegance is life lived without complaint. Notice perhaps within your soma, within your body, what are you feeling? I bet you any money you're feeling some contraction. And that contraction is based fundamentally around some unwanted experience. You're feeling something you just don't want to feel. So here's the practice. You feel the urge to complain, pause, look within, and ask yourself, what am I feeling right now that I just don't want to feel? And then you, what do you do? Stay with that. Stay with that. That's the reverse strategy. Don't express it. Sometimes, yes, of course, you have to. I'm not. I'm talking basically fundamentally. Don't express it. Feel it. Wake down. Stay with that feeling. And then watch your relationship to it change. Watch that contraction open, release, like you were talking about with anxiety transforming into excitement. Watch that open into a type of energy that is then free from whatever triggered what you then appended the label complaint. Because complaint is what? That's a type of suffering brought about by an inappropriate relationship to some discord, some discomfort, some pain. So just to repeat, super simple. You feel the urge to complain, pause. Drop down into your body. What am I feeling right now? I just don't want to feel. Stay with that. And then what will happen? Your body will then purify it and it will inform you what you really should do or should say. So as simple as that. Very practical. You'll probably have an opportunity to practice this before the hour is up. <laughs> <laughs> practice it while we're doing it. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much for everything that you've brought to this conversation. I know it's helpful to a lot of people. So for listeners that are interested in learning more about you, your work, and your book, where's the best place for them to connect? Oh, you're very kind. Um, well, I've got my propaganda sites, right? I have my website, mm -hmm. Andrew Holacek, H-O-L-E-C-E-K.com. Um, I also have a, a podcast platform myself called Edge of Mind. Um, and uh, I think you can find my books, any, whatever they say, any, where, where all, any book was sold kind of thing. Um, but those are my websites. That's kind of what our role. And uh, Melissa, thank you so much for a great set of questions. Really fun to hang with you. I so appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about my stuff. All the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 318. Your challenge for this week is to notice when you complain. This practice seems so simple, but even just the other day, I had this newfound realization. It's almost like the more I practice it, the more I learn about it, the more perspectives I hear the exact same concept through, the more I grok it. I love that word. If you've ever read a book called Stranger in a Strange Land, it will make a lot of sense. To grok is to basically understand something so well that you become it. It changes who you are. 
So you can think of the same word when you're considering transforming your relationship to pain or suffering or discomfort or complaints. Any desire to change the situation as it is. I was given an opportunity to practice this just the other day, and I'm not going to lie and say that I'm amazing at it all the time, or that I don't handle my emotions the completely wrong way sometimes. But every time that I see the opportunity and I take it to practice a new way of being with these things, the more I strengthen those neural pathways and it becomes easier and easier each time. So this week, it seems as though almost everything has gone wrong. I was having a particularly hard day and my husband took my toddler and I was just struggling with our baby. He wouldn't nap, it was a whole thing. I had plans to be productive and everything was just going wrong. I could feel myself wanting to spew all of my complaints via text message to my husband. And my mind was justifying it in a way of, I just need to release this. I just need to vent to somebody. But what it really was, was a need to share my discomfort, to spread these feelings of pain. It really is an illustration of misery loves company. But it's funny how your conscious mind won't even admit to doing that. Well, I had recently done this episode. So I was reminded that there's a different way to handle it. I suddenly decided to tune into my body instead of acting on my discomfort. And what I noticed was that I felt a lump in my throat. I felt tightness in my chest. And somehow those feelings were the ones that were encouraging me in a way to spew out all of my angst onto other people. But just sitting with them, they didn't feel as unbearable anymore. And so I took a few deep breaths. I still wasn't happy by any means, but I was able to see that this is something that I can get through, that it's something that would pass. And so I encourage you to practice this, whether it's a big complaint or a little complaint. This is a technique that can be applied in almost any situation, whether it's road rage and traffic to deep heartbreak and grief. So let me know how it goes. Reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa. If you love this episode, please consider sharing it. Take a screenshot and tag mindlovemelissa and mindlovepodcast, or just press the share button and share it directly with someone who needs it. We also have tons of tools that help you apply more intention and love and desire into your life at the Mind Love Membership. You can find out more at mindlove.com slash membership. And all of my amazing sponsors with their discounts are at mindlove.com slash sponsors. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week.